0: From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in Sultry, Savannah, Georgia. This is Obscure, Season Four, An American Tragedy. I'm your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer in chief, Michael Ian Black. Bundled up in the house, got up, um, well, woke up at eight thirty this morning, and then did the spelling bee for a little bit in bed, and then fell back asleep till ten. And then Martha was like, "Hey, we should go out to breakfast," and then by that point. She was ready to go, and I didn't want to delay her, so I, I got dressed without showering, and once I get dressed without showering, it's very difficult for me to then subsequently get into the shower, so this could be a day without showering, just bundled up in in the Arctic Southern temps, uh, in my freezing house, and unclean in every sense of the word. It's a weird thing living in the South, You'd think, well, you, you just, you're never going to be cold in the South because it's always hot here. Well, these old buildings with the single-pane windows and, you know, temperatures get down to the 40s and 50s and you get chilly. I'm not going to lie to you. I've been chilly since October here in the American South. Just just as chilly here as I am in northern climes. The temperature is higher, but my sensitive little body is just not capable of dealing with Anything much below 70 degrees. I've probably bitched and moaned about this before on the podcast, but I just thought, well, I'll never be cold again. I was wrong. You could probably hear it. Listen, that's my puffy vest. You know, and I'm trying to minimize the sound of the puffy vest by not moving around too much. But, uh, yeah. New Year's has come and gone. We're now in 2024. I don't know how many years I've been doing this podcast. Many. One, two, three, four, I don't know, probably getting on five years, you know, reading works of classic literature out loud and commenting on them as I go. It was a bad idea that has not improved with age. Martha said to me over breakfast at that breakfast place that we went to, how's an American tragedy coming? And I said, fine, fine, because I think that's about how it's going. I mean, in terms of the book, I like the book, and I told her, and in terms of you guys, you're hanging in there with me. She said, how's the feedback been? I said, well, there's not that much commentary. People don't talk about it that much. They're just kind of listening, and in terms of the financials of it, oh, it doesn't make sense at all. It doesn't make any sense at all for me to continue doing this, and yet, here we are, our cozy little book club, bundled up against the winter, enjoying literature the way it was meant to be enjoyed via podcast. We left it last time with a a true tragedy. Nine-year-old girl getting run over by the Packard in a car full of happy adolescents, taking her out, just turning the corner, rushing to get to work because everybody was dilly-dallying and feeling each other up out there at the end and they got late for work. And then then one thing led to another. Next thing you know, a a nine-year-old girl's getting mowed down right in the middle of Kansas City and outraged spectators gathering around the gal and looking down at her and and then the the people in the car itself horrified outraged shocked at this turn of events and then we got sparser that poor sap who borrowed the packard ran over the girl and last time we saw him he was attempting to speed away to avoid responsibility and uh what happened He uh he's he, he says it, it, given, given the engine, all the gas it would endure, he sped with it to the next corner beyond. So he went exactly one corner. Because, you know, it's trafficy there in Kansas City. Well, let's see what happens as we pick it up. Chapter 19, An American Tragedy. So they've just sped to another corner. And here we are, but there, as at the other corners in this vicinity, a policeman was stationed. (laughs) Well, yeah, we talked about this in the last episode. There's cops all over the place directing traffic, trying to get people from point A to point B. Well, Sparcer just made this guy's day. You know, how bored was that policeman standing there in the corner, you know, with his little paddle and going, you this way, you that way. Maybe he's got a little whistle. He's blowing it around. His dogs are probably tired of standing out there and uh, wondering what bad choices he made to get himself stationed on a corner in the middle of Kansas City telling automobiles which way to go, this and that. He probably doesn't even approve of automobiles. Probably wishes we'd just go back to horse and buggy. But then, out of nowhere, some kid crashes a car and he's Johnny on the spot. Policeman was stationed and having already seen some commotion at the corner west of him, had already started to leave his post in order to ascertain what it was. As he did so, cries of, stop that car, stop that car, reached his ears. And a man, running toward the sedan from the scene of the accident, pointed to it and called, stop that car, stop that car, they've killed a child. <laughs> now, this is just a tiny thing, but, you know, some sometimes authors overuse the exclamation point, you know, and Stop that car, stop that car, they've killed the child. Each of those little sentences ending with a period. You'd think you got a guy running, screaming at a policeman to stop the car, stop the car. Then just the the, the message itself, they've killed a child. All of it seems like it deserves a certain amount of exclamation marks, but nope, not even a one. Then gathering what was meant, he turned toward the car putting his police whistle to his mouth as he did so, as he did so, so I guess he does have a whistle. But sparser, having by this time heard the cries and seen the policeman leaving, dashed swiftly past him into 17th Street, along which he sped at almost 40 miles an hour, grazing the hub of a truck, in one instance, scraping the fender of an automobile in another and missing by inches and quarter inches vehicles or pedestrians, while those behind him in the car were for the most part sitting bolt upright and tense, their eyes wide, their hands clenched, their faces and lips set, or, as in the case of Hortense and Lucille Nicholas and Tina Kogel, giving voice to repeated, oh gods, oh, what's going to happen now? <laughs> Why is it that the, the, the more tragic the book gets, uh, the funnier it gets for me? It doesn't speak well to my, of my character, I can tell you that much. But the police and those who had started to pursue were not to be outdone so quickly, unable to make out the license plate number and seeing from the first motions of the car that it had no intention of stopping. Okay, so we've learned a few things. One, police whistles, that's a thing. And two, license plates, also a thing. Seeing the first motions of the car that it had no intention of stopping, the officer blew a loud and long blast on his police whistle. And the policeman at the next corner, seeing the car speed by, in realizing what it meant, blew on his whistle, then stopped, and springing on the running board of a passing touring car, ordered it to give chase. And at this, seeing what was a miss or a wind, three other cars, driven by adventurous spirits, joined in the chase, all honking loudly as they came. So we suddenly got a car chase right in the middle of Kansas City. How exciting. Sort of a Buster Keaton-esque, Charlie Chaplin-type, Keystone Cops, pure as the driven snow car chase. We've got policemen hanging on running boards. We've got adventurous spirits in their own automobiles giving chase to Sparser and the gang's Packard. All of them running pell-mell across the wide boulevards, narrowly missing pedestrians, and vehicles alike as they try to escape the long arm of the law. Will they be successful? But the Packard had far more speed in it than any of its pursuers. And although for the first few blocks of the pursuit, there were cries of, Stop that car! Stop that car! These which, with, parenthetically speaking, exclamation marks. So who knows? Still, owing to the greater, the much greater speed of the car, These soon died away, giving place to the long, wild shrieks of distant horns in full cry. So it sounds like maybe he's escaped his immediate predicament, which is the dead girl lying in the middle of the road. But, I mean, how, I mean, you know, is he really going to escape? It seems very unlikely at this point. I mean, for one thing... Everybody, there's witnesses, tons of them. They're all going to be able to describe the car. The car now is is nicked and dented and, and beat up from grazing the various hubs of trucks and fenders of passing automobiles, not to mention the indentation from a girl, <laughs> probably, you know, somewhere on the car. I don't know. I don't know where exactly they struck on the car, they struck the girl, or where in the car struck her. But, you know, there's probably going to be some marks or dings or something from it. And then, you know, and then you've got everybody in the car wondering what to do. What are they going to do? Are they going to give up Sparser? Are they going to turn on each other? Is this going to be a Lord of the Flies thing? Is it going to be the first one to confess, gets off the easiest? Who knows? Who knows? I mean, look, the 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 people in the car, than Sparser, cannot be rightfully accused of doing anything wrong. And they're hardly accomplices to the crime. I mean... Sparser took off before anybody was able to do anything. So I think the burden of this, legally speaking, is going to fall pretty heavily on Sparser. And yet, if I was in the car, I'd be worried about my own hide too. Sparser, by now having won a fair lead and realizing that a straight course was the least baffling to pursue, turned swiftly into McGee a comparatively quiet thoroughfare along which he tore for a few blocks to the wide and winding Gillum Parkway, whose course was southward. But having followed that at terrific speed for a short distance, he again, at 31st, decided to turn, the houses in the distance confusing him and the suburban country to the north seeming to offer the best opportunity for evading his pursuers. And so now he swung the car to the left into that thoroughfare, his thought here being that amid these comparatively quiet streets, it was possible to wind in and out and so shake off pursuit, at least long enough to drop his passenger somewhere and return the car to the garage. And this he would have been able to do, had it not been for the fact Then in turning into one of the more outlying streets of this region, where there were scarcely any houses and no pedestrians visible, he decided to turn off his lights, the better to conceal the whereabouts of the car. Then, still speeding east, north and east, and south by turns, he finally dashed into one street where, after a few hundred feet, the pavement suddenly ended. But because another cross street was visible a hundred feet or so further on, and he imagined that by turning into that he might find a paved thoroughfare again, he sped on and then swung sharply to the left, only to crash roughly into a pile of paving stones left by a contractor who was preparing to pave the way. In the absence of lights, he had failed to distinguish this. And diagonally opposite to these, lengthwise of a prospective sidewalk, had been laid a pile of lumber for a house. So, he's, I mean, he might even get airborne here. This is a classic car chase of the 1920s variety. You know, just hapless boobs jouncing along in a car. I'm surprised none of them have fallen out of the car at this point. There's no seatbelts or anything. Somebody, Somebody's going to get their head snapped off. Striking the edge of the paving stones at high speed, he caromed and all but upsetting the car made directly for the lumber pile opposite into which he crashed. Only instead of striking it head-on, the car struck one end causing it to give way and spread out. What does that mean? Oh, I guess the lumber pile. But only sufficiently to permit the right wheels to permit high upon it and so throw the car completely over onto its left side in the grass and snow beyond the walk. Then there, amid a crash of glass and the impacts of their own bodies, the occupants were thrown down in a heap forward, and to the left. All right, let's just try to picture this scene. He's going, he's he's driving at high speeds through Kansas City, turning this way and that, trying to evade his pursuers. He turns onto a quiet residential road. He cuts the lights. He makes a sharp left, distinguishing a thoroughfare there in the distance. The pavement has ended. And, uh, unbeknownst to him, because he has lights off and he's on a, on rough road, he smacks into a pile of paving stones, which turns the car, caroms it, and, uh, he's still going as fast as he can. He hits a pile of lumber, which spreads out, causing the car to go up on its right wheels and turn over on its left side with a crash of glass and bodies spilling out. And we don't know what the hell's going to happen next. As good a time as any for a break as I can imagine. Take a break. And then we will collect ourselves and see the state of our young adolescent murderers. Back in a moment on Obscure. An obscure, blood in the snow. We've got a passel of passengers. Is that good or bad that I said passel of passengers? I'm going to say good. We've got a passel of passengers, or would-be passengers, now flung from the Packard. A passel of Packard passengers pirouetted onto the precipitation on the pavement. Well, there's no pavement, but I needed a P word. Okay. The occupants were thrown down in a heap forward and to the left. What happened afterwards is more or less of a mystery and a matter of confusion, not only to Clyde, but to all the others. For Sparser and Laura's sight being in front were dashed against the windshield and the roof and knocked senseless. Sparser, having his shoulder, hip, and left knee wrenched in such a way as to make it necessary to let him lie in the car as he was until an ambulance arrived. He could not possibly be lifted out to the door, which was in the roof as the car now lay. Okay, the door is in the roof, okay? And in the second seat, Clyde, being nearest the door to the left and next to him, Hortense, Lucille, Nicholas, and Radder, was pinioned under, but wouldn't, wouldn't you say were, they were? Oh, 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 oh! I see, I see. And in the second seat, Clyde, being nearest the door, and next to him, Hortense, Lucille, Nicholas, and Radder was pinioned under, so Clyde was pinioned, and yet not crushed by their combined weights. For Hortense, in falling, had been thrown completely over him on her side against the roof, which was now the left wall. Okay, so she's over him, she's under him, she's over him, against the roof, which is the left wall, and Lucille, next above her, fell in such a way as to lie across Clyde's shoulders only, while Ratterer, now topmost of the four, had, in falling, been thrown over the seat in front of him. So, we've got a kind of macabre replay of the game they were playing on the ice, where they would... You know, form themselves into kind of like a whip shape, and then using the, using the power of physics, release their energy and throw kids across the little creek there, and they'd all go tumbling into the snowbanks and all kinds of un, ungainly and unsightly shapes with the girls' legs up in the air and their knees exposed, and everybody laughing gaily and having a fantastic time. Well, this is a macabre reflection of that. They're all tossed and the legs are up and and people are scattered all over other people but nobody's laughing now it's trouble and pain and maybe blood and maybe uh maybe uh, maybe uh, compressed vertebrae I don't know grasping the steering wheel in front of him as he fell this is sparser the same having been wrenched from oh no Rads Sparser's hands, he had broken his fall in part by clinging to it, but even so, his face and hands were cut and bruised, and his shoulder, arm, and hip slightly wrenched, yet not sufficiently to prevent his being of assistance to the others. For at once, realizing the plight of the others as well as his own, and stirred by their screams, Ratterer was moved to draw himself up and out through the top or side door, which he now succeeded in opening, scrambling over the others to reach it. Okay, so Ratterer himself, like the others, is, uh, is beat up, dinged up, injured, amiss, and marred, but he manages to get the door open, gets himself out. So he's the first one out. Once out, he climbed upon the chassis beam of the toppled car and, reaching down, caught hold of the struggling and moaning Lucille, who, like the others, was trying to climb up but could not. And exerting all his strength and exclaiming, Be still now, honey, I got you. You're all right. I'll get you out. He lifted her to a sitting position on the side of the door, then down in the snow where he placed her and where she sat crying and feeling her arms in her head. And after her, he helped Hortense, her left cheek and forehead, and both hands badly bruised and bleeding, but not seriously, although she did not know that at the time. She was whimpering and shivering and shaking, a nervous chill having succeeded the dazed and almost unconscious state which had followed the first crash. So she's in shock, We've got Radder out, we've got Lucille out, we've got Hortense out. Um, Hortense bleeding and in shock. We've got trouble. With a capital T, that rhymes with P, that stands for Packard. At that moment, Clyde, lifting his bewildered head above the side door of the car, his left cheek, shoulder, and arm bruised, but not otherwise injured, was thinking that he too must get out of this as quickly as possible. A child had been killed, a car stolen and wrecked. His job was most certainly lost. The police were in pursuit and might even find them there at any minute, and below him in the car was Sparser, prone where he fell, but already being looked to by Rattler and beside him laura sype also unconscious he felt called upon to do something to assist radwr who was reaching down and trying to lay hold of laura sype without injuring her but so confused were his thoughts that he would have stood there without helping anyone had it not been for radwr who called most irritably give us a hand here clyde willis yes, let's see if we can get her out she's fainted and clyde turning now, instead of trying to climb out, began to seek to lift her from within, standing on the broken glass window of the side beneath his feet and attempting to draw her body back and up off the body of Sparser. So he, so they're outside the car. He's inside the car, trying to, trying to get her off Sparser and lift her, help lift her up and out of the car. She's unconscious. Radar, unconscious below her and... No, it's just a it's just a mess. But this was not possible, meaning getting her up and off Sparser. She was too limp, too heavy. He could only draw her back off the body of Sparser and then let her rest there between the second and first seats on the car's side. Yes, I think that's probably best. Let's let the medical personnel come with their jaws of life and their gurneys and their neck braces and make sure that she's going to be all right without, you know, doing too much to, uh, to unsettle her where she is. Yeah, you get her off Ratterer, but, you know, hopefully she's not dead. Hopefully Ratterer's not dead. We don't need three dead in this car wreck, the little girl and those two. But who knows? We'll see. But meanwhile, at the back, Hegland, being nearest the top and only slightly stunned, had managed to reach the door nearest him and throw it back. Thus, by reason of his athletic body, he was able to draw himself up and out, saying as he did so, oh, Jesus, what a finish. Oh, Christ, this is the limit. Oh, Jesus, we better beat it out of this before the cops get here. <laughs> better, enough, nothing to do but run. I mean, look, Heglund. far be it from me to give you advice, but I don't think it's going to take very long for the coppers to catch up with you. Once they figure out whose car it is, and who Sparcer is, and who Laura Sight is, and where everybody works, it's only going to be a matter of minutes before they descend on the hotel and arrest the whole Lottia. And even if you don't go to work, I mean, you know, there's going to be a pack of boys missing from the bellhop station. And it's not going to take him long to get wind of that. And then the next thing you know, you're all getting hauled off down to the police station. Any way you look at it, you're fucked, Hegland There's no point in running. In fact, it's just going to make it worse. At the same time, however, seeing the others below him and hearing their cries, he could not contemplate anything so desperate as desertion. Instead... Once out, he turned, and making out Maida below him, exclaimed, Here, yeah, for Christ's sake, give me your hand. we got to get out of this, and damn quick, I tell you. And turning from Maida, who for the moment was feeling her wounded and aching head, he mounted the top chassis beam again, and reaching down, caught hold of Tina Kogel, who only stunned, was trying to push herself to a sitting position while resting heavily on top of Higby, but he relieved of the weight of the others, was already kneeling and feeling his head and face with his hands. Give me your hand, Dave, called Hagelin. Hurry, for Christ's sake, we ain't got no time to lose around here, you heard? Christ, we gotta get out of here. I tell you, I see a guy coming across there now, and I, I don't know whether he's a cop or not. He started to lay hold of Higby's left hand, but as he did so, Higby repulsed him, he exclaimed. Don't pull. I'm all right. I'll get up by myself. Help the others. And standing up, his head above the level of the door, he began about. He began to look about within the car for something on which to place his foot. Please let it be the little girl's head, he finds with his foot. Please let the little girl's head be <laughs> popped off of her body and landed in the car with them, unbeknownst to them at this point, and he's going to put his, his foot on her head, and try to climb out that way. Let that be the case, but I don't think it's going to be. Uh, the black cushion, having fallen out and forward, he got his foot on that and raised himself up to the door level on which he sat and drew out his leg. Then looking about and seeing Hegland attempting to assist Radderer and Clyde with sparser, he went to their aid. Outside, some odd and confusing incidents had already occurred. For Hortense, who had been lifted out before Claude and had suddenly begun to feel her face, had as suddenly realized that her left cheek and forehead were not only scraped but bleeding. And being seized by the notion that her beauty might have been permanently marred by this accident, she was at once thrown into a state of selfish panic, which caused her to become completely oblivious, not only to the misery and injury of the others, but to the danger of discovery by the police, the injury to the child, the wreck of this expensive car, in fact, everything but herself, and the probability or possibility that her beauty had been destroyed." she began to whimper on the instant and wave her hands up and down oh goodness 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 she exclaimed desperately and you can't see it but i'm waving my own hands to to get the to get the idea you know oh goodness 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 she exclaimed desperately oh how dreadful oh how terrible oh my face is all cut and feeling an urgent compulsion to do something about it she suddenly set off (laughs) and without a word to anyone and while clyde was still inside helping ratterer south along 35th street toward the city where were lights and more populated streets her one thought was to reach her own home as speedily as possible in order that she might do something for herself. Well, tragedy so often reveals character, does it not? And while we did not think very highly of Hortense before this, <laughs> after this, I would say we we probably think even less. But we've got Clyde there, you know, trying to do the right thing, I think. His missionary upbringings finally kicking into gear... And we've got the rest of the crew also trying to help and assist each other. Only Hortense has fled the scene in panic, in blind panic and shock. She is, she is not made of strong enough stuff to deal with this sort of adversary. adversity. I don't know how many people are. I mean, I think most of us kind of know what to do in these situations. We, we stay put. We help each other. We talk to the cops when they come and we we take our just desserts. There's nothing else we can do, is there? You know, it's just a tragic accident, and you know, there's gonna be some penance to pay. Probably more from Rider than anybody else, but Hortense isn't concerned about that. Her only thought at this minute is by God. What if I get a scar across my forehead and cheek? What if what if my beauty is forever marred? Well, you and I know. That would be the best thing that could possibly happen to her, you know? Get her to grow up. Get her to start walking the straight and narrow. Not stop relying on her looks so much. Start relying on that big, beautiful brain she's gotten in her skull that, to date, has been too filled with images of powder puffs and little fur coats and pocketbooks and all the rest of it. Well, we'll leave it there. You know, the gang is in trouble, and they're in it together. Separate Hortense, who doesn't care about anybody but herself. But she's in shock, you know. It reminds me of that scene, and they, the Will Ferrell and Julia Louis Dreyfus made a remake of this movie. I don't remember what it's called, but it's basically the the inciting incident is the family's going skiing. Maybe you've seen this movie, maybe you haven't. The family's going skiing. They're in like the French Alps or something, and they're out there hanging a little, having a little après ski, some hot cocoa, some fries, whatever it is. And they're watching the mountains, and then they see some snow coming down the mountain. It looks like, by golly, there's an avalanche, an avalanche coming down the mountain. And at first, they're not too worried about it because they're they're some distance away. But gradually, it seems like the snow is getting closer and closer, and it's getting a little scary. And the character, uh, who gets played by Will Ferrell in the American version, eventually panics. And as the avalanche is coming, he grabs his cell phone and flees the scene, flees from the family leaving them to be buried in the avalanche. Well, the avalanche kind of comes and Snow sort of blankets the deck, but it's not anything terrible. You know, it's just like kind of a scary but would, would would be a fun moment, but now utterly ruined by the fact that Will Ferrell has abandoned his family in their hour of need, the moment of their supposed need, took his phone and ran away. Well, that's what Hortense is doing right now. She's She's grabbing her phone and running away from the avalanche you know, instead of dealing with the problem at hand. And I tell you, things did not go well for the couple in the movie, and I suspect things are not going to go well for Hortense and Clyde as all of this shakes out. We don't know. We don't know. I mean, will this be enough to uh, break the spell that Clyde has? Will he become less ensorcelled? I like to think so. I hope so. But I guess we'll find out on another dramatic episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you adieu. This season of Obscure is produced by me, Michael Ian Black, and the great Robin Lin. Our theme song is by Craig Wedron We Rely On You, the listeners, for support. So please... Go to patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black. Sign up. There's all kinds of fun stuff. There's goodies. You could join the book club where we get together. We talk about the book that we're reading. Uh, And it's just a fun community. So, you know, head on over to patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black. And I will see you next time.